smile, though your heart is shaking. Smile, even though it's breaking, when there are clouds in the sky. You're listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name. And now here's your host, Rish Outfield. Hey folks, finish it, go ahead and finish it. You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you'll just smile. Smile, that's right. I have been Rich Outfield, and this has... Oh, I just started. Never mind, it just feels like we've been going for a very long time. Welcome, once again, to this show. I am recording this at the very end of 2022. I realized that after the Scarlet Citadel episodes, I didn't have any more podcasts that dare not speak their name, except for one that I recorded in November of 2021, the very last day I was at the cabin. I was driving back. I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating I was driving back and I did an episode of it for the story that I had recorded that day, which I thought was a good story. And then when I got home, I found out that that story was not old. It was not a century old. It was from the 1980s. Uh, And so I chickened out. I didn't dare put out that episode. And yet, I put out an episode for a Stephen King story, who, who is slightly, slightly, more well-known than Tony Richards. Anyhow, I uh, realized that I had no stories ready to go. Uh, But, oh, no, no, that's not true. I had a couple of stories ready to go, stories that I had edited over the summer. And one of them was by F. Marion Crawford, who is long dead. Wait, I said that a little bit too joyfully. Let me do it again, but much more soberly. Who is long dead? And so I thought, okay, that, that will be my next tale uh, that I share with you folks. And so here we go. Why, why, why belabor the point? This is a story from... Folks, what you are not aware of is that uh, for the last 20 minutes, I was doing research trying to figure out when this story was written. Because Wikipedia said it was 1899, but a simple Google search said it was 1911. I, I just kept trying to figure out, okay, where was it first published? That will tell us, you know? I don't care when it was written so much as when it was first published. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't get to the bottom of it until I discovered that F. Marion Crawford died in April of 1909. So that is a hint <laughs> that the story was not written in 1911. So I'm going to say 1899 again. Francis Marion Crawford, surprisingly enough, was an American writer. He was noted for his many novels, especially those set in Italy, uh, where he was born. 
he, uh, he was famous for historical fiction in his day. He was famous for historical fiction. But what has remained after his death have been his horror stories, several of which, such as The Upper Birth, uh, 1886, For the Blood is the Life, 1905, The Screaming Skull, 1908, and this one are often anthologized classics of the horror genre. He was a big influence on M.R. James, who cited Upper Birth, uh, he was a big influence on M.R. James's work, especially his, his ghost stories. And I read an essay today comparing O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, with um, Crawford's The Upper Birth. I did download the story The Upper Birth today, and, and I will give it a read, and perhaps in a future episode, I will share that story with you. I uh, will let you go now. Listen to the story. I hope that you enjoy it. And if not, oh, I farted. The Dead Smile by F. Marion Crawford Sir Hugh Ockram smiled as he sat by the open window of his study in the late August afternoon. And just then, a curiously yellow cloud obscured the low sun, and the clear summer night turned lurid, as if it had been suddenly poisoned and polluted by the foul vapors of a plague. Sir Hugh's face seemed, at best, to be made of fine parchment drawn skin-tight over a wooden mask, in which two eyes were sunk out of sight and peered from far within through crevices under the slanting, wrinkled lids, alive and watchful, like two toads in their holes, side by side and exactly alike. Nurse MacDonald said once that when Sir Hugh smiled, he saw the faces of two women in hell, two dead women he had betrayed. Nurse MacDonald was a hundred years old. And the smile widened, stretching the pale lips across the discolored teeth in an expression of profound self-satisfaction blended with the most unforgiving hatred and contempt for the human doll. The hideous disease of which he was dying had touched his brain. His son stood beside him, tall, white, and delicate as an angel in a primitive picture, and though there was deep distress in his violet eyes, as he looked at his father's face, he felt the shadow of that sickening smile stealing across his own lips and parting them and drawing them against his will. And it was like a bad dream, for he tried not to smile and smiled the more. Beside him, strangely like him in her wan, angelic beauty, with the same shadowy golden hair, the same sad violet eyes, the same luminously pale face, Evelyn Warburton rested one hand upon his arm, and as she looked into her uncle's eyes and could not turn her own away, she knew that the deathly smile was hovering on her own red lips, drawing them tightly across her little teeth, while two bright tears ran down her cheeks to her mouth and dropped from the upper to the lower lip while she smiled, and the smile was like the shadow of death and the seal of damnation upon her pure young face. Of course, 
said Sir Hugh very slowly, and still looking out at the trees, if you have made up your mind to be married, I cannot hinder you, and I don't suppose you attach the smallest importance to my consent. Father! exclaimed Gabriel reproachfully. No, I do not deceive myself, continued the old man, smiling terribly. You will marry when I am dead, though there is a very good reason why you had better not. Why you had better not, he repeated very emphatically, and he slowly turned his toad eyes upon the lovers. What reason? asked Evelyn in a frightened voice. Never mind the reason, my dear. You will marry just as if it did not exist. There was a long pause. Too gone, he said, his voice lowering strangely. And two more will be four, all together, for ever and ever, burning, burning, burning bright. At the last words his head sank slowly back, and the little glare of the toad eyes disappeared under the swollen lids, and the lurid cloud passed from the westering sun, so that the earth was green again and the light pure. Sir Hugh had fallen asleep, as he often did in his last illness, even while speaking. Gabriel Ockram drew Evelyn away, and from the study they went out into the dim hall, softly closing the door behind them, and each audibly drew breath, as though some sudden danger had been passed. They laid their hands, each in the others, and their strangely like eyes met in a long look, in which love and perfect understanding were darkened by the secret terror of an unknown thing. Their pale faces reflected each other's fear. "'It is his secret,' said Evelyn at last. "'He will never tell us what it is.' "'If he dies with it,' answered Gabriel, "'let it be on his own head.' "'On his head,' echoed the dim hall. It was a strange echo, and some were frightened by it, for they said that if it were a real echo it should repeat everything and not give back a phrase here and there, now speaking, now silent. But Nurse MacDonald said that the great hall would never echo a prayer when an Akram was to die, though it would give back curses ten to one. On his head, it repeated quite softly, and Evelyn started and looked round. It is only the echo, said Gabriel, leading her away. They went out into the late afternoon light and sat upon a stone seat behind the chapel which was built across the end of the east wing. It was very still. Not a breath stirred, and there was no sound near them. Only far off in the park a songbird was whistling the high prelude to the evening chorus. "'It is very lonely here,' said Evelyn, taking Gabriel's hand nervously and speaking as if she dreaded to disturb the silence." If it were dark, I should be afraid. Of what? Of me? Gabriel's sad eyes turned to her. Oh, no! How could I be afraid of you? But of the old Ockrams. 
They say they are just under our feet here in the north vault outside the chapel, all in their shrouds, with no coffins, as they used to bury them. As they always will, as they will bury my father and me. They say an Ockram will not lie in a coffin. But it, it cannot be true. These are fairy tales, ghost stories. Evelyn nestled nearer to her companion, grasping his hand more tightly, and the sun began to go down. Of course, but there is a story of old Sir Vernon, who was beheaded for treason under James the Second. The family brought his body back from the scaffolds in an iron coffin with heavy locks, and they put it in the north vault. But ever afterwards, whenever the vault was opened to bury another of the family, they found the coffin wide open, and the body standing upright against the wall, and the head rolled away in a corner, smiling at it. "'As Uncle Hugh smiles?' Evelyn shivered. "'Yes, I, I suppose so,' answered Gabriel, thoughtfully. "'Of course I never saw it, and the vault has not been opened for thirty years. None of us have died since then. And if—if if Uncle Hugh dies, shall you—' Evelyn stopped, and her beautiful thin face was quite white. "'Yes, I shall see him laid there, too.' with his secret, whatever it is. Gabriel sighed and pressed the girl's little hand. I do not like to think of it, she said unsteadily. Oh, Gabriel, what can the secret be? He said we had better not marry. Not that he forbade it, but he said it so strangely, and he smiled. Ugh! Her small white teeth chattered with fear, and she looked over her shoulder while drawing still closer to Gabriel. And somehow I felt it in my own face. So did I, answered Gabriel in a low, nervous voice. Nurse MacDonald, uh... He stopped abruptly. What? What did she say? Oh, nothing. She has told me things. They would frighten you, dear. Come, it is growing chilly. He rose, but Evelyn held his hand in both of hers, still sitting and looking up into his face. "'But we shall be married, just the same. Gabriel, say that we shall.' "'Of course, darling, of course. But while my father is so very ill, it is impossible to—' "'Oh, Gabriel, Gabriel, dear, I wish we were married now,' cried Evelyn in sudden distress. "'I know that something will prevent it and keep us apart.' Nothing shall. Nothing. Nothing human, said Gabriel Akram, as she drew him down to her, and their faces, that were so strangely alike, met and touched, and Gabriel knew that the kiss had a marvelous savor of evil, but on Evelyn's lips it was like a cool breath of a sweet and mortal fear, and neither of them understood, for they were innocent and young yet she drew him to her by her lightest touch, as a sensitive plant shivers and waves its thin leaves, and bends and closes softly upon what it wants, and he let himself be drawn to her willingly, as he would if her touch had been deadly and poisonous, for he strangely loved that half-voluptuous breath of fear, and he passionately desired the nameless evil something that lurked in her maiden lips. 
It is as if we loved in a strange dream, she said. I fear the waking, he murmured. We shall not wake, dear. When the dream is over, it will have already turned into death, so softly that we shall not know it. But until then... She paused, and her eyes sought his, and their faces slowly came nearer. It was as if they had thoughts in their red lips that foresaw and foreknew the deep kiss of each other. Until then, she said again, very low, and her mouth was nearer to his. Dream till then, murmured his breath. Nurse MacDonald was a hundred years old. She used to sleep sitting all bent together in a great old leathern armchair with wings, her feet in a bag footstool lined with sheepskin, and many warm blankets wrapped about her, even in summer. Beside her a little lamp always burned at night by an old silver cup in which there was something to drink. Her face was very wrinkled, but the wrinkles were so small and fine and near together that they made shadows instead of lines. Two thin locks of hair that were turning from white to a smoky yellow again were drawn over her temples from under her starched white cap. Every now and then she woke, and her eyelids were drawn up in tiny folds like little pink silk curtains, and her queer blue eyes looked straight before her through doors and walls and worlds to a far place beyond. Then she slept again, and her hands lay one upon the other on the edge of the blanket. The thumbs had grown longer than the fingers with age, and the joints shone in the low lamplight like polished crab apples. It was nearly one o'clock in the night, and the summer breeze was blowing the ivy branch against the panes of the window with a hushing caress. In the small room beyond, with the door ajar, the girl-maid who took care of Nurse MacDonald was fast asleep. All was very quiet. The old woman breathed regularly, and her indrawn lips trembled each time as the breath went out, and her eyes were shut. But outside the closed window there was a face, and violet eyes were looking steadily at the ancient sleeper, for it was like the face of Evelyn Warburton, though there were eighty feet from the sill of the window to the foot of the tower. Yet the cheeks were thinner than Evelyn's, and as white as a gleam, and her eyes stared, and the lips were not red with life. They were dead and painted with new blood. Slowly, Nurse MacDonald's wrinkled eyelids folded themselves back, and she looked straight at the face at the window while one might count ten. Is it time? she asked in her little old faraway voice. While she looked, the face at the window changed, for the eyes opened wider and wider till the white glared all round the bright violet and the bloody lips opened over gleaming teeth and stretched and widened and stretched again and the shadow golden hair rose and streamed against the window in the night breeze. And in answer to Nurse MacDonald's question came the sound that freezes the living flesh, that low moaning voice that rises suddenly like the scream of storm from a moan to a wail, from a wail to a howl, from a howl to the fierce shriek of the tortured dead. 
He who had heard knows, and he can bear witness that the cry of the banshee is an evil cry to hear alone in the deep night. When it was over, and the face was gone, Nurse MacDonald shook a little in her great chair, and still she looked at the black square of the window, but there was nothing more there, nothing but the night and the whispering ivy branch. She turned her head to the door that was ajar, and there stood the girl in her white gown, her teeth chattering with fright. "'It is time, child,' said Nurse MacDonald. "'I must go to him, for it is the end.' She rose slowly, leaning her withered hands upon the arms of the chair, and the girl brought her a woolen gown and a great mantle and her crutch-stick, and made her ready. But very often the girl looked at the window and was unjointed with fear, and often Nurse MacDonald shook her head and said words which the maid could not understand. "'It was like the face of Miss Evelyn,' said the girl at last, trembling. But the ancient woman looked up sharply and angrily, and her queer blue eyes glared. She held herself by the arm of the great chair with her left hand, and lifted up her crutch-stick to strike the maid with all her might— but she did not. "'You are a good girl,' she said, "'but you are a fool. Pray for wit, child, pray for wit, or else find service in another house than Ockram Hall. Bring the lamp and help me under my left arm.' The crutch-stick clacked on the wooden floor, and the low heels of the woman's slippers clappered after her in slow triplets, as Nurse MacDonald got towards the door. And down the stairs each step she took was a labor in itself, and by the clacking noise the waking servants knew that she was coming very long before they saw her. No one was sleeping now, and there were lights and whisperings and pale faces in the corridors near Sir Hugh's bedroom, and now someone went in, and now someone came out, but every one made way for Nurse MacDonald, who had nursed Sir Hugh's father more than eighty years ago. The light was soft and clear in the room. There stood Gabriel Ockram by his father's bedside, and there knelt Evelyn Warburton, her hair lying like a golden shadow down her shoulders, and her hands clasped nervously together. And opposite Gabriel, a nurse was trying to make Sir Hugh drink. But he would not, and though his lips were parted, his teeth were set. He was very, very thin now, and his eyes caught the light sideways and were as yellow coals. "'Do not torment him,' said Nurse MacDonald to the woman who held the cup. "'Let me speak to him, for his hour has come.' "'Let her speak to him,' said Gabriel in a dull voice. So the ancient woman leaned to the pillow and laid the feather weight of her withered hand— that was like a brown moth upon Sir Hugh's yellow fingers, and she spoke to him earnestly while only Gabriel and Evelyn were left in the room to hear. "'Hugh, Ockram,' she said, "'this is the end of your life, and as I saw you born and saw your father born before you, I am come to see you die. Hugh, Ockram, will you tell me the truth?' 
The dying man recognized the little faraway voice he had known all his life, and he very slowly turned his yellow face to Nurse MacDonald. But he said nothing. Then she spoke again. Hugh Ockram, you will never see the daylight again. Will you tell me the truth? His toad-like eyes were not dull yet. They fastened themselves on her face. What do you want of me? he asked. And each word struck hollow on the last. I have no secrets. I have lived a good life. Nurse MacDonald laughed, a tiny cracked laugh that made her old head bob and tremble a little, as if her neck were on a steel spring. But Sir Hugh's eyes grew red, and his pale lips began to twist. Let me die in peace, he said slowly. But Nurse MacDonald shook her head, and her brown, moth-like hand left his and fluttered to his forehead. By the mother that bore you and died of grief for the sins you did, tell me the truth. Sir Hugh's lips tightened on his discolored teeth. Not on earth, he answered slowly. By the wife who bore your son and died heartbroken, tell me the truth. Neither to you in life, nor to her in eternal death. His lips writhed as if the words were coals between them, and a great drop of sweat rolled across the parchment of his forehead. Gabriel Ockram bit his hand as he watched his father die. But Nurse MacDonald spoke a third time. By the woman whom you betrayed and who waits for you this night, Hugh Ockram, tell me the truth. It is too late. Let me die in peace. The writhing lips began to smile across the set yellow teeth and the toad eyes glowed like evil jewels in his head. There is time, said the ancient woman. Tell me the name of Evelyn Warburton's father, then I will let you die in peace. Evelyn started back, kneeling as she was, and stared at Nurse MacDonald, and then at her uncle. The name of Evelyn's father? he repeated slowly, while the awful smile spread upon his dying face. The light was growing strangely dim in the great room. As Evelyn looked, Nurse MacDonald's crooked shadow on the wall grew gigantic. Sir Hugh's breath came thick, rattling in his throat as death crept in like a snake and choked it back. Evelyn prayed aloud, high and clear, then something rapped at the window, and she felt her hair rise upon her head in a cool breeze, and she looked around in spite of herself. And when she saw her own white face looking in at the window, and her own eyes staring at her through the glass, wide and fearful, and her own hair streaming against the pane, and her own lips dashed with blood, she rose slowly from the floor and stood rigid for one moment, till she screamed once and fell straight back into Gabriel's arms. 
but the shriek that answered hers was the fierce shriek of the tormented corpse, out of which the soul cannot pass for shame of deadly sins, though the devils fight in it with corruption, each for their due share. Sir Hugh Ockram sat upright in his deathbed and saw and cried aloud, Evelyn! His harsh voice broke and rattled in his chest as he sank down. But still Nurse MacDonald tortured him, for there was a little life left in him still. You have seen the mother as she waits for you, Hugh Ockram. Who was this girl Evelyn's father? What was his name? For the last time, the dreadful smile came upon the twisted lips, very slowly, very surely now, and the toad eyes glared red, and the parchment face glowed a little in the flickering light. For the last time, words came. They know it in hell. Then the glowing eyes went out quickly. The yellow face turned waxen pale, and a great shiver ran through the thin body as Hugh Ockram died. But in death he still smiled, for he knew his secret and kept it still on the other side, and he would take it with him, to lie with him forever in the north vault of the chapel where the Ockrams lie uncoffined in their shrouds, all but one. Though he was dead, he smiled, for he had kept his treasure of evil truth to the end, and there was none left to tell the name he had spoken. But there was all the evil he had not undone left to bear fruit. As they watched, Nurse MacDonald and Gabriel, who held Evelyn still unconscious in his arms while he looked at the father, they felt the dead smile crawling along their own lips, the ancient crone and the youth with the angel's face. Then they shivered a little, and both looked at Evelyn as she lay with her head on his shoulder, and, though she was still very beautiful, the same sickening smile was twisting her young mouth too, and it was like the foreshadowing of a great evil which they could not understand. But by and by they carried Evelyn out, and she opened her eyes, and the smile was gone. From far away in the great house, the sound of weeping and crooning came up the stairs and echoed along the dismal corridors, for the women had begun to mourn the dead master after the Irish fashion, and the hall had echoes of his own all that night, like the far-off wail of the banshee among forest trees. When the time was come, they took Sir Hugh in his winding-sheet on a trestle bier, and bore him to the chapel and through the iron door and down the long descent to the north vault with tapers to lay him by his father. And two men went in first to prepare the place and came back staggering like drunken men and white, leaving their lights behind them. But Gabriel Ockram was not afraid, for he knew, and he went in alone and saw that the body of Sir Vernon Ockram was leaning upright against the stone wall, and that his head lay on the ground near with its face turned up, and the dried leathern lips smiled horribly at the dried-up corpse, while the iron coffin, lined with black velvet, stood open on the floor. 
Then Gabriel took the thing in his hands, for it was very light, being quite dried by the air of the vault, and those who peeped in from the door saw him lay it in the coffin again. And it rustled a little, like a bundle of reeds, and sounded hollow as it touched the sides and the bottom. He also placed the head upon the shoulders and shut down the lid, which fell to with a rusty spring that snapped. After that they laid Sir Hugh beside his father, with the trestle beer on which they had brought him, and they went back to the chapel. But when they saw one another's faces, master and men, they were all smiling, with the dead smile of the corpse they had left in the vault, so that they could not bear to look at one another until it had faded away. Gabriel Ockram became Sir Gabriel, inheriting the baronetcy with a half-ruined fortune left by his father, and still Evelyn Warburton lived at Ockram Hall in the south room that had been hers ever since she could remember anything. She could not go away, for there were no relatives to whom she could have gone, and besides, there seemed to be no reason why she should not stay. The world should never trouble itself to care what the Ockrams did on their Irish estates, and it was long since the Ockrams had asked anything of the world. So Sir Gabriel took his father's place at the dark old table in the dining room, and Evelyn sat opposite to him, until such time as their mourning should be over, and they might be married at last. And meanwhile their lives went on as before, since Sir Hugh had been a hopeless invalid during the last year of his life and they had seen him but once a day for the little while, spending most of their time together in a strangely perfect companionship. But though the late summer saddened into autumn, and autumn darkened into winter, and storm followed storm, and rain poured on rain through the short days and the long nights, yet Ockram Hall seemed less gloomy since Sir Hugh had been laid in the north vault beside his father, and at Christmas tide, Evelyn decked the great hall with holly and green boughs, and huge fires blazed on every hearth, when the tenants were all bidden to a New Year's dinner, and they ate and drank well while Sir Gabriel sat at the head of the table. Evelyn came in when the port wine was brought, and the most respected of the tenants made a speech to propose her health. It was long, he said, since there had been a Lady Ockram. Sir Gabriel shaded his eyes with his hand and looked down at the table, but a faint color came into Evelyn's transparent cheeks. But, said the gray-haired farmer, it was longer still since there had been a Lady Ockram so fair as the next was to be, and he gave the health of Evelyn Warburton. Then the tenants all stood up and shouted for her, and Sir Gabriel stood up likewise beside Evelyn, and when the men gave the last and loudest cheer of all, there was a voice not theirs, above them all, higher, fiercer, louder, a scream not earthly, shrieking for the bride of Ockram Hall. And the holly and the green boughs over the great chimney-piece shook and slowly waved as if a cool breeze were blowing over them. But the men turned very pale, and many of them set down their glasses, but others let them fall upon the floor for fear, and looking into one another's faces, they were all smiling strangely, a dead smile, like dead Sir Hugh's. One cried out words in Irish, and the fear of death was suddenly upon all, so that they fled in panic, falling over one another like wild beasts in the burning forest, 
when the thick smoke runs along before the flame, and the tables were overset, and drinking glasses and bottles were broken in heaps, and the dark red wine crawled like blood upon the polished floor. Sir Gabriel and Evelyn stood alone at the head of the table before the wreck of the feast, not daring to turn to see each other, for each knew that the other smiled. But his red arm held her, and his left hand clasped her right as they stared before them. But for the shadows of her hair, one might not have told their two faces apart. They listened long, but the cry came not again, and the dead smile faded from their lips, while each remembered that Sir Ockram lay in the north vault, smiling in his winding sheet, in the dark, because he had died with his secret. So ended the tenant's New Year's dinner. But from that time on, Sir Gabriel grew more and more silent, and his face grew even paler and thinner than before. Often without warning and without words, he would rise from his seat, as if something moved him against his will. And he would go out into the rain or the sunshine to the north side of the chapel, and sit on the stone bench, staring at the ground as if he could see through it, and through the vault below, and through the white winding sheet in the dark to the dead smile that would not die. Always when he went out in that way, Evelyn came out presently and sat beside him. Once, too, as in summer, their beautiful faces came suddenly near, and their lids drooped, and their red lips were almost joined together. But as their eyes met, they grew wide and wild, so that the white showed in a ring all round the deep violet, and their teeth chattered, and their hands were like the hands of corpses, each in the others for the terror of what was under their feet, and of what they knew but could not see. Once also, Evelyn found Sir Gabriel in the chapel alone, standing before the iron door that led down to the place of death, and in his hand there was the key to the door, but he had not put it in the lock. Evelyn drew him away, shivering, for she had also been driven, in waking dreams, to see that terrible thing again, and to find out whether it had changed since it had lain there. "'I'm going mad,' said Sir Gabriel, covering his eyes with his hand as he went with her. "'I see it in my sleep. I see it when I am awake. It draws me to it day and night, and unless I see it I shall die.' "'I know.' answered Evelyn. I know. It is as if the threads were spun from it, like a spider's, drawing us down to it. She was silent for a moment, and then she started violently and grasped his arm with a man's strength, and almost screamed the words she spoke. But we must not go there, she cried. We must not go. Sir Gabriel's eyes were half shut, and he was not moved by the agony of her face. I shall die. "'Unless I see it again,' he said, in a quiet voice not like his own. And all that day and that evening he scarcely spoke, thinking of it, always thinking, while Evelyn Warburton quivered from head to foot with a terror she had never known. She went alone, on a grey winter's morning, to Nurse MacDonald's room in the tower, and sat down beside the great leathern easy-chair, laying her thin white hand upon the withered fingers. "'Nurse,' she said, "'what was it that Uncle Hugh should have told you "'that night before he died? "'It must have been an awful secret, "'and yet, though you asked him, "'I feel somehow that you know it "'and that you know why he used to smile so dreadfully.' 
The old woman's head moved slowly from side to side. I only guess. I shall never know, she answered slowly in her cracked little voice. But what do you guess? Who am I? Why did you ask who my father was? You know I am Colonel Warburton's daughter, and my mother was Lady Ockram's sister, so that Gabriel and I are cousins. My father was killed in Afghanistan. What secret can there be? I do not know. I can only guess. Guess what? asked Evelyn imploringly, and pressing the soft, withered hands as she leaned forward. But Nurse MacDonald's wrinkled lids dropped suddenly over her queer blue eyes, and her lips shook a little with her breath, as if she were asleep. Evelyn waited. By the fire the Irish maid was knitting fast, and the needles clicked like three or four clocks ticking against each other, and the real clock on the wall solemnly ticked alone, checking off the seconds of the woman who was a hundred years old and had not many days left. Outside, the ivy branch beat the window in the wintry blast, as it had beaten against the glass a hundred years ago. Then, as Evelyn sat there, she felt again the waking of a horrible desire, the sickening wish to go down, down to the thing in the north vault, and to open the winding sheet and see whether it had changed. And she held Nurse MacDonald's hands as if to keep herself in her place and fight against the appalling attraction of the evil deed. But the old cat that kept Nurse MacDonald's feet warm, lying always on the bag footstool, got up and stretched itself and looked up into Evelyn's eyes while its back arched and its tail thickened and bristled and its ugly pink lips drew back in a devilish grin, showing its sharp teeth. Evelyn stared at it, half fascinated by its ugliness. Then the creature suddenly put out one paw with all its claws spread and spat at the girl, and all at once the grinning cat was like the smiling corpse far down below. But Evelyn shivered down to her small feet and covered her face with her free hand lest Nurse MacDonald should wake and see the dead smile there, for she could feel it. The old woman had already opened her eyes again, and she touched her cat with the end of her crutch stick, whereupon its back went down and its tail shrunk, and it sidled back to its place on the footstool. But its yellow eyes looked up sideways at Evelyn between the slits of its lids. "'What is it that you guess, nurse?' asked the young girl again. "'A bad thing, a wicked thing.' But I dare not tell you, lest it might not be true, and the very thought should blast your life. For if I guess right, he meant that you should not know, and that you two should marry and pay for his old sin with your souls. He used to tell us that we ought not to marry. Yes, he told you that, perhaps. But it was as if a man put poisoned meat before a starving beast and said, Do not eat, but ever raised his hand to take the meat away. And if he told you that you should not marry, it was because he hoped you would. For of all men, living or dead, Hugh Ockram was the falsest man that ever told a cowardly lie, and cruelest that ever hurt a weak woman, and the worst that ever loved a sin. But Gabriel and I 
love each other, said Evelyn, very sadly. Nurse MacDonald's old eyes looked far away, at sights seen long ago, and that rose in the grey winter air amid the mists of an ancient youth. If you love, you can die together, she said very slowly. Why should you live if it is true? I am a hundred years old. What has life given me? The beginning is fire, and the end is a heap of ashes, and between the end and the beginning lies all the pain in the world. Let me sleep, since I cannot die. Then the old woman's eyes closed again, and her head sank a little lower upon her breast. So Evelyn went away and left her asleep, with a cat asleep on the bag footstool, and the young girl tried to forget Nurse MacDonald's words, but she could not, for she heard them over and over again in the wind and behind her on the stairs, and as she grew sick with fear of the frightful unknown evil to which her soul was bound, she felt a bodily something pressing her and pushing her and forcing her on, and from the other side she felt the threads that drew her mysteriously, and when she shut her eyes she saw in the chapel behind the altar the low iron door through which she must pass to go to the thing. And as she lay awake at night she drew the sheet over her face, lest she should see shadows on the wall beckoning her, and the sound of her own warm breath made whisperings in her ears while she held the mattress with her hands to keep from getting up and going to the chapel. It would have been easier if there had not been a way thither through the library, by a door which was never locked. It would be fearfully easy to take her candle and go softly through the sleeping house, and the key of the vault lay under the altar behind a stone that turned. She knew the little secret. She could go alone and see. But when she thought of it, she felt her hair rise on her head, and first she shivered so that the bed shook, and then the horror went through her in a cold thrill that was agony again, like myriads of icy needles boring into her nerves. The old clock in Nurse MacDonald's tower struck midnight. From her room she could hear the creaking chains and weights in their box in the corner of the staircase and overhead the jarring of the rusty lever that lifted the hammer. She had heard it all her life. It struck eleven strokes clearly, and then came the twelfth, with a dull half-stroke, as though the hammer were too weary to go on, and had fallen asleep against the bell. The old cat got up from the bag footstool and stretched itself, and Nurse MacDonald opened her ancient eyes and looked slowly round the room by the dim light of the night lamp. She touched the cat with her crutch-stick, and it lay down upon her feet. She drank a few drops from her cup and went to sleep again. But downstairs Sir Gabriel sat straight up as the clock struck, for he had dreamed a fearful dream of horror, and his heart stood still till he awoke at its stopping, and it beat again furiously with his breath, like a wild thing set free. No Ockram had ever known fear waking, but sometimes it came to Sir Gabriel in his sleep. He pressed his hands to his temples as he sat up in bed, and his hands were icy cold, but his head was hot. The dream faded far, and in its place 
there came the master thought that racked his life. With the thought also came the sick twisting of his lips in the dark that would have been a smile. Far off, Evelyn Warburton dreamed that the dead smile was on her mouth and awoke, starting with a little moan, her face in her hands shivering. But Sir Gabriel struck a light and got up and began to walk up and down his great room. It was midnight, and he had barely slept an hour, and in the north of Ireland the winter nights are long. I shall go mad, he said to himself, holding his forehead. He knew that it was true. For weeks and months the possession of the thing had grown upon him like a disease, till he could think of nothing without thinking first of that. And now all at once it outgrew his strength, and he knew that he must be its instrument or lose his mind, that he must do the deed he hated and feared, if he could fear anything, or that something would snap in his brain and divide him from life while he was yet alive. He took the candlestick in his hand, the old-fashioned heavy candlestick that had always been used by the head of the house. He did not think of dressing, but went as he was, in his silk nightclothes and his slippers, and he opened the door. Everything was very still in the great old house. He shut the door behind him and walked noiselessly on the carpet through the long corridor. A cool breeze blew over his shoulder and blew the flame of his candle straight out from him. Instinctively he stopped and looked round, but all was still, and the upright flame burned steadily. He walked on, and instantly a strong draft was behind him, almost extinguishing the light. It seemed to blow him on his way, ceasing whenever he turned, coming again when he went on, invisible, icy. Down the great staircase to the echoing hall he went, seeing nothing but the flaring flame of the candle standing away from him over the guttering wax, while the cold wind blew over his shoulder and through his hair. On he passed through the open window into the library, dark with old books and carved bookcases, on through the door with painted shelves on it and the intimated backs of books so that one needed to know where to find it, and it shut itself after him with a soft click. He entered the low arched passage, and though the door was shut behind him and fitted tightly in its frame, still the cold breeze blew the flame forward as he walked, and he was not afraid but his face was very pale, and his eyes were wide and bright, looking before him, seeing already in the dark air the picture of the thing beyond. But in the chapel he stood still, his hand on the little turning stone tablet in the back of the stone altar. On the tablet were engraved words, Clavis sepultri, clarissimorum, diminerum de ocrum, the key to the vault of the most illustrious lords of ocrum, Sir Gabriel paused and listened. He fancied that he heard a sound far off in the great house where all had been so still, but it did not come again. Yet he waited at the last and looked at the low iron door. Beyond it, down the long descent, lay his father uncoffined, six months dead, corrupt, terrible in his clinging shroud. The strangely preserving air of the vault could not yet have done its work completely. But on the thing's ghastly features, with their half-dried open eyes, there would still be the frightful smile with which the man had died, the smile that haunted. As the thought crossed Sir Gabriel's mind, 
He felt his lips writhing, and he struck his own mouth in wrath with the back of his hand so fiercely that a drop of blood ran down his chin, and another, and more, falling back in the gloom upon the chapel pavement. But still his bruised lips twisted themselves. He turned the tablet by the simple secret. It needed no safer fastening, for had each Akram been confined in pure gold, and had the door been wide, there was not a man in Tyrone brave enough to go down to that place, saving Gabriel Akram himself, with his angel's face and his thin white hands and his sad, unflinching eyes. He took the great gold key and set it into the lock of the iron door, and the heavy, rattling noise echoed down the descent beyond like footsteps, as if a watcher had stood behind the iron and were running away within with heavy, dead feet. And though he was standing still, the cool wind was from behind him and blew the flame of the candle against the iron panel. He turned the key. Sir Gabriel saw that his candle was short. There were new ones on the altar with long candlesticks, and he lit one and left his own burning on the floor. As he set it down on the pavement, his lip began to bleed again, and another drop fell upon the stones. He drew the iron door open and pushed it back against the chapel wall so that it should not shut of itself while he was within, and the horrible draft of the sepulchre came up out of the depths in his face, foul and dark. He went in, but though the fetid air met him, yet the flame of the tall candle was blown straight from him against the wind while he walked down the easy incline with steady steps, his loose slippers slapping the pavement as he trod. He shaded the candle with his hand, and his fingers seemed to be made of wax and blood as the light shone through them, and in spite of him the unearthly draft forced the flame forward till it was blue over the black wick and seemed as if it must go out. But he went straight on with shining eyes. The downward passage was wide, and he could not always see the walls by the struggling light, but he knew when he was in the place of death by the larger, drearier echo of his steps in the greater space, and by the sensation of a distant blank wall. He stood still, almost enclosing the flame of the candle in the hollow of his hand. He could see a little, for his eyes were growing used to the gloom. Shadowy forms were outlined in the dimness, where the beers of the Akram stood crowded together, side by side, each with its straight, shrouded corpse, strangely preserved by the dry air, like the empty shell that the locust sheds in summer. And a few steps before him he saw clearly the dark shape of headless Sir Vernon's iron coffin, and he knew that nearest to it lay the thing he sought. He was as brave as any of those dead men had been, and they were his father's, and he knew that sooner or later he should lie there himself, beside Sir Hugh, slowly drawing to a parchment shell. But he was still alive, and he closed his eyes a moment, and three great drops stood on his forehead. Then he looked again, and by the whiteness of the winding sheet he knew his father's corpse, for all the others were brown with age, and moreover the flame of the candle was blown towards it, he made four steps till he reached it, and suddenly the light burned straight and high, shedding a dazzling yellow glare upon the fine linen that was all white, save over the face, and where the joined hands were laid on the breast. 
and at those places ugly stains had spread, darkened with outlines of the features and of the tight-clasped fingers. There was a frightful stench of drying death. As Sir Gabriel looked down, something stirred behind him, softly at first, then more noisily, and something fell to the stone floor with a dull thud and rolled up to his feet. He started back and saw a withered head lying almost face upward on the pavement, grinning at him. He felt the cold sweat standing on his face, and his heart beat painfully. For the first time in all his life, that evil thing which men call fear was getting hold of him, checking his heartstrings as a cruel driver checks a quivering horse, clawing at his backbone with its icy hands, lifting his hair with freezing breath, climbing up and gathering in his midriff with leaden weight. Yet presently he bit his lip and bent down, holding the candle in one hand to lift the shroud back from the head of the corpse with the other. Slowly he lifted it. Then it clove to the half-dried skin of the face, and his hand shook as if someone had struck him on the elbow. But half in fear and half in anger at himself, he pulled it so that it came away with a little ripping sound. He caught his breath as he held it, not yet throwing it back and not yet looking. The horror was working in him, and he felt that old Vernon Ockram was standing up in his iron coffin, headless, yet watching him with the stump of his severed neck. While he held his breath, he felt the dead smile twisting his lips. In sudden wrath at his own misery, he tossed the death-stained linen backward and looked at last. He ground his teeth lest he should shriek aloud. There it was, the thing that haunted him, that haunted Evelyn Warburton, that was like a blight on all that came near him. The dead face was blotched with dark stains, and the thin gray hair was matted about the discolored forehead. The sunken lids were half open, and the candlelight gleamed on something foul where the toad eyes had lived. But yet the dead thing smiled as it had smiled in life. The ghastly lips were parted and drawn wide and tight upon the wolfish teeth, cursing still and still defying hell to do its worst, defying, cursing, and always and forever smiling alone in the dark. Sir Gabriel opened the winding sheet where the hands were and the blackened, withered fingers were closed upon something stained and mottled. Shivering from head to foot, but fighting like a man in agony for his life, he tried to take the package from the dead man's hold. But as he pulled at it, the claw-like fingers seemed to close more tightly, and when he pulled harder, the shrunken hands and arms rose from the corpse with a horrible look of life following his motion. Then, as he wrenched the sealed packet loose at last, the hands fell back into their place still folded. He set down the candle on the edge of the bier to break the seals from the stout paper, he read what was within, written long ago in Sir Hugh's queer hand. He was no longer afraid. He read how Sir Hugh had written it all down, that it might perchance be a witness of evil and of his hatred, how he had loved Evelyn Warburton, his wife's sister, and how his wife had died of a broken heart with his curse upon her and how Warburton and he had fought side by side in Afghanistan, and Warburton had fallen, but Ockram had brought his comrade's wife back a full year later, 
and little Evelyn, her child, had been born in Ockram Hall. And next, how he had wearied of the mother, and she had died like her sister with his curse on her, and then how Evelyn had been brought up as his niece, and how he had trusted that his son Gabriel and his daughter, innocent and unknowing, might love and marry, and the souls of the women he had betrayed might suffer another anguish before eternity was out. And, last of all, he hoped that some day, when nothing could be undone, the two might find his writing and live on, not daring to tell the truth for their children's sake and the world's word, man and wife. This he read, kneeling beside the corpse in the north vault and by the light of the altar candle, and when he had read it all, he thanked God aloud that he had found the secret in time. But when he rose to his feet and looked down at the dead face, it was changed and the smile was gone from it forever, and the jaw had fallen a little, and the tired, dead lips were relaxed. And then there was a breath behind him and close to him, not cold like that which had blown the flame of the candle as he came, but warm and human. He turned suddenly. There she stood, all in white, with her shadowy golden hair, for she had risen from her bed and had followed him noiselessly and had found him reading and had herself read over his shoulder. He started violently when he saw her, for his nerves were unstrung, and then he cried out her name in the still place of death. Evelyn, my brother, she answered softly and tenderly, putting out both hands to meet his. There you go. The Dead Smile. I really wish these didn't take so long to produce. I, I had intended to put out a podcast that dares not speak its name every single month in 2022, and I didn't quite manage that, but I came close. And we'll see what this new year holds as far as this goes. I, was, I did do a search through my files and there is a second podcast that dares not speak its name that is recorded from July or August that I can put out there. And then uh, I'll start having to find new ones. Oh, you know, I also did another Stephen King one, but I, I don't want to be greedy. I, I'm trying to keep those about a year apart. Sometimes it's not quite that much, but oh well. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this story. It's a little bit old-fashioned, right? The mores are dated, or, or of their time, if you will. And uh, I'm reminded that uh, my cousin and I, we went and saw a movie together last week. And they had the trailer for the new M. Night Shyamalan movie. And it was one of those very mysterious trailers, one of those, we're not going to give you a lot of details about this movie, except here's the premise, here's who's in it, and here's who the director was. And yet, once I saw that name, 
I spent the next minute or so thinking about what I had just seen and trying to come up with what the best twist would be on that scenario, on that, on that idea for a story. And that's totally damning. <laughs> that, 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 you, you don't want to do that. I remember the very first time that I did it, it was uh, The Village, which I believe was only like his, that was the one that came out after Signs. And I think a lot of people participated in that game of, oh, okay, M. Night has another movie coming out. Let's figure out what the twist is. And um, it's too bad because those twists became a huge crutch for the guy and I have to admit that it hampers my enjoyment of these films. The, the, the twist is so integral to your enjoyment of the film. Now, that, you know, that's not the case in everything. For example, Signs, the twist is, is, is sort of secondary. The whole movie doesn't hinge on the twist, on Don't Give Away the Twist as much as Sixth Sense, as much as Unbreakable, as much as The Village, as much as, what was the one in the woods with the, the, the two children going to grandma's house? That one has one of those twists where if somebody has told you the twist, you don't need to see the movie. The, the Unbreakable sequel, that one, the twist was this is an unbreakable sequel or side story. And that's the whole reason I went and saw the movie was because I heard that. But you can totally enjoy it without that twist. And then Glass, do you remember Glass? The twist uh, of that movie was that it was a giant piece of crap. But anyhow, I digress, except for I don't. The Dead Smile is a, move, is a story about a mystery is a story about a secret, a deep, dark family secret that the patriarch has gone to his death without disclosing. And if you know that, if you know that going in, that's what the movie is, sorry, story is about, then perhaps you'll think about it. And more than likely, because you are smart, you will have figured out what the twist is going to be before the author gets to it. And as I said before, that can just absolutely topple a story and the, the narrative impact of a story when you're trying to figure out the, the twist, when you're trying to figure out the solution. The best thing to do is A, write a story that is entertaining whether or not you know the twist. Or two, write a story in such a way that you don't realize that there's a twist coming, that you don't realize that there is a solution to the mystery. Uh, and, and so it takes you by surprise because you weren't considering what it could be. Now, that's just my opinion. I think that you can enjoy this story because it's a period piece, because it's a little bit creepy, because there's a star-crossed romance involved. Um, However, if you told me that you did anticipate what the, the twist was, 
what the ending would be. Uh, and it made you not want to listen to the rest of the story. I can't argue with that. Everybody experiences things differently. But going back to Hollywood, we are truly in the, the darkest period as far as trailers giving everything away goes. I complained almost endlessly two decades ago when the, the Double Jeopardy trailer gave away the end of the movie. In fact, I snuck into Double Jeopardy because I did not want to support a movie where the trailer told you what the ending was going to be. And I was blown away because <laughs> the part that they showed in the trailer at the end of the trailer came at the very end of the movie. I think there was probably 45 seconds of the movie left when you got to that part that the trailer had given away. But that, that was years ago. And that movie was, was totally successful. And so they kept doing it and kept doing it. And it's unconscionable to shoot your movie in the foot like that for, for an easy trailer moment. And I've seen it time and time again lately where they give the premise, they give who is in it, they give the title, and then, because they can't help themselves, they give the ending. And I remember when that uh, Invisible Man, the Bloomhouse Invisible Man came out, I was just offended that they would dare show the ending of that. It's like, what, you guys had us with the premise. And you know what? If you didn't have us, if somebody wasn't determined to go to it based on what you had shown us, why would showing the ending of the movie convince us to go see it? The, gosh, what was, there was one that was so recent and I can't remember what it was. The, there was a movie called The Menu, if you recall. And it's a bunch of rich snobs uh, invited onto an island for a big fancy, you know, once in a lifetime meal from this famous chef played by Ray Fiennes. I think they say that it's like $1,200 a plate kind of thing. Uh, and it sh shows you who's in it. And really all you needed was, well, something's not right. What is really going on here? And then the title, the menu. If you show, if you can convey that, that there is a mystery attached well enough, then that is all you need. And the people that want to go to it will go to it. But instead, that was two thirds of the trailer. And the final third is, okay, now we're going to tell you what's going on with this. And then we're going to tell you what the main character does once she finds out what was going on. And I posted on Facebook when that movie came out to anyone who went and saw the menu, did the trailer give away the ending? Because I hadn't seen the movie. I had only seen the trailer. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, there's still another twist coming or another moment coming. Sometimes you'll see that. I remember when Avengers Endgame came out. Kevin Feige was really 
adamant to only show clips from the first 20 minutes of the movie in the trailer. So a lot of the stuff that we saw when we went and saw that movie was completely new to us. We didn't know who, which characters were going to be in it. We certainly didn't know how the movie was going to end. And that's great when you can do that. Feige is powerful enough that he can say, you know, this is what we're going to do. and We're going to only release this footage. But a lot of people aren't that powerful or they don't care or the studio doesn't care. I guess that's what I was going to say about the, the menu. Nobody posted on Facebook that the trailer gave away the ending or didn't give away the ending because nobody went to see the menu. Sadly, I did go see the menu the day after, the, or, or on Thanksgiving after we'd had our Thanksgiving meal. I went with my cousin. I went with my niece. I went with my cousin's daughter and her girlfriend. And it, uh, anyway... I would have enjoyed that movie so much more not knowing where it was going. But at the same time, would I have gone to see the movie if it had been presented in a much more limited way of, okay, this is who is in it. They are invited to this island estate to eat a unique meal that they will never forget. Oh, but wait, wait, something else is going on. It's, you know, one of the a-hole characters says, hey, what is going on here? Or whatever, and you, you end the trailer that way. Would I have gone to see it? I don't know. I don't know. Are you out of your mind? Ooh, that's a good one. But the trailer that we saw set up a very different movie than I saw. And it did it an injustice. But again, only the people that, people that paid to see the movie know how much of the trailer, how much of the film the trailer spoiled. But nobody went and saw the movie, so it doesn't matter. Somebody could have fabricated a trailer that worked really well, that set the mood, and that whetted your appetite and sparked your curiosity and left it at that. But that takes work. And sometimes just... I've, I, I had a friend that worked at a trailer house and he showed me what they did, uh, how, how it worked. He was like, okay, this is a, a reel of the footage that I have to work with that the, the filmmakers sent me. And so I've sat down and I've looked through all of it and made notes of the things that are interesting. And he said, sometimes they'll send you the whole movie, but not all the time. Usually they want a trailer while they're still working on the movie, you know? And he says, there have been times when they've sent me like five minutes of footage or less. And you have to make a trailer out of four minutes of footage or three minutes of footage. And, and that is a lot more difficult, he said. He said, there, have been, there was a trailer, and I can't remember anymore how, what movie it was, but there was a trailer where I used every inch of footage that they sent me because I had so little. And... Um, what I do is I make a note of all the shots that I want to use. I put them in a certain order. I edit them together with some temp music underneath, uh, temporary titles. I save that. I send that to the filmmakers for their approval. They come back to me, letting me know any changes that they want. 
Sometimes they just say thumbs up. And then I do a high quality transfer based on the changes that they wanted, putting the kind of music, you know, sometimes they have to have music clearances. So you have to substitute a song. Sometimes by the point of doing the trailer, they've already started scoring. And so you can use some of that. But usually it's just like a pop song or he had a huge library of public domain music that you could use or music that had been licensed. I think that's what it was, the big thing was, was that the trailer house had licensed certain songs. And because those songs were already paid for and you could use them in any trailer, those songs tended to show up a lot in trailers. Anyway, I, I was only there for the one day, sitting, watching how he did his work. I found it very, very interesting. But it's a bit of an assembly line. There's not a lot of time to craft art. It's just your job. And there's probably another trailer coming after that and another trailer coming after that. And so as fast as you can do it, you do it. And that is why there are, are, are trailer houses that have a format that have a, a very strict formula of how they do their trailers. And they sort of, it's sort of cookie cutter and they just feed the footage into this format and then put them out. A lot of these trailers are just samey. And that is because of the nature of the beast. Sometimes you will get a trailer that is art. And I'm aware that there is a some kind of award given out for trailers, but I would be really curious to see like the, the, the categories and the nominees and who wins each year. That, that would be interesting to me, but probably not interesting to a lot of people. This has almost nothing to do with the dead smile. So I'll just end. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed my narration. I, realizing that he was an American author rather than a British author, would that have changed my narration? I don't think so. Because of the way the dialogue was written, it just did not feel like these characters should have American accents. That's just me, though. I discovered today, during that long stretch where, that I cut out, where I was recording for about 15 minutes while I did research, that... One of the stories that I did on the podcast that dares not speak its name in 2022 was done on another podcast in 2022. And I'd be really curious to see, to compare the two performances because everybody interprets things a little bit differently. I am pretty performative as far as my narrations go. And, um, other people are not, but of course I have my dialect. I have my voice, the pitch of my voice. I have sort of the stock voices that I do for characters and just like the trailer park, I guess I have a formula that I stick things in fairly often and other people probably have their formula or unless they're a huge hack in which they, case they just read it and don't do any voices, don't do any preparation, don't try to interpret the work. But my guess is that whoever did that narration at least tried to make it entertaining. 
In the words of Russell Crowe's character in Gladiator, are you not entertained? I have been Rish Outfield, reminding you to light up your face with gladness, hide every trace of sadness. You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you'll just smile. Good night. And with that, the end has come to another podcast that dares not speak its name. Whether you liked it or hated it, it was produced under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, share alike license, which allows free distribution of the show, but does not allow it to be claimed, edited or sold, or for it to be bisected by a laser beam. The music therein, provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, was also under a Creative Commons license. If, unlike me, you enjoy the show and would like to help it continue, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield to donate a dollar and up an episode and bring Rish Outfield back from the brink of despair, though not of madness. That, my friends, has already claimed him. Just one second, okay? God! I'm sorry. It was that the face of me, Sevelyn? I'm going to have it un 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 wrap itself. I'm in high school now, over at Wagner. You ever go there? Over at Wagner. You ever been there? He asked, even though he knew she'd attended. uh, Even though he knew he, even though he knew she'd attended Antelope Ridge up on the hill. Even though he knew, even though he, even though he was well aware that she'd attended Antelope Ridge up on the hill. While Layla tended to be more socially awkward and developed intense crushes that rendered her and in and developed intense crushes that rendered her and in de- <laughs> and developed intense crushes that rendered her a babbling dork and developed intense crushes that transformed her into a babbling dork um i i've i've got sarah mclachlan but maybe there's a better choice what are considered the saddest songs in the world Traitor? Now, come on. Olivia Rodrigo, uh, driver's license is way sadder than Traitor. Oh, I love the boxer. Driver's license. Hurt is great. Fuck you, Drake. Love is a laser quest? Everybody hurts is good. Swim good. I. Ooh, I'd like to hear that. Shallow is sad? Come on. Pile Driver Waltz. Just Like Heaven is a happy song. Pink Moon, I remember liking that. Oh, Into My Arms is a good song. Joni Mitchell, oh, I like Joni Mitchell. Bat for Lashes? Effing Cats in the Cradle, Die. Tears in Heaven is good. Jolene is good. <laughs> I gave it to Jolene. Oh my gosh, that was the best joke. 
Seth, of the entire year. Bright Eyes? Oh my gosh, I know it's over. It's great. Nirvana. Oh, he stopped loving her today. Okay, you know what? That That's a classic. Landslide is great. Yeah, that, that, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. Layla cried for a couple of minutes and played that Fleetwood Mac song their mother called the saddest in the world. Maybe the songwriter had lost their house in a mudslide or something. Wait, ju- wait just a minute. Did you say may cause anal bleeding? No, that's not a question. Oh, sorry, you're right. Not did you, it's you didn't. You didn't say may cause anal bleeding? Still not a question. Yeah, I'm still making it. You didn't say may cause anal bleeding. Try Dinkar's prim and fill your energy to the brim.